You know, I don't know about you, but as I move towards the dawning of what I believe is a new decade, I am more and more inclined to want to know the voice of the Lord and the purposes of God for my life. It's so easy at times just to get caught up in the routine of our spiritual journey and not take a little bit of time or, or effort to just draw aside, to be with him, to hear his heart and to know his purposes. You know, God, when he speaks, always leads you to life. Every time he opens his mouth to communicate, it brings healing to your life, but also it leads you to life. It leads you into a greater measure of the fullness of his presence in your life. So please, be people who hearken, people who listen. We would be praying for all of our lives this week as we prepare that we would be ones whose hearts, our minds, and lives are inclined to the voice of the Spirit so that we can be in step with the Spirit in all that God wants to do in the year that lies ahead. There are adventures to go on. Three of us are really excited, Jesus, about that. There are adventures to go on. Do you know, when you started out in 2019, did you imagine you would end up in some of the places you ended up? I don't know what happened to you. I only come out for a loaf of bread. And I ended up moving to London. God has plans to prosper and to bless you. And as we start this new adventure, we must come to that new dawning of a new decade with a great sense of anticipation and expectation because God always leads us into more. He always leads us into life. But if I'm trying to get to the more of God by human effort, I will find myself just crashing on the rocks of disappointment because it's only by His Spirit and only in obedience to his voice that I actually can ever fully inherit what it is that he has for us. And so as we were worshiping tonight, the Holy Spirit just dropped a little image into my mind and I saw somebody and I think these things exist. I have seen them on television, but you know immediately when I say them to you, I have no actual experience of them. Have you heard of a thing called a dumbbell? Now apparently, does anybody know what a dumbbell is? Okay, who's got a set of dumbbells? Clearly those with muscles are. Now I think these are just small little things with weights on the end and you do this to, to, to build your arm strength. And is there, any, is there anybody here who has done this? I mean, it's all well and good to talk about it by faith, but is there anybody here who has actually physically done this? Does it work? Does it work? Well, I can't see any difference, so I'm just wondering, does it actually work? Does it really work? Apparently, in the spirit, as I saw this, I said to the Lord, what, what are you trying to communicate to me? Because you know, you can see from my body, I've never been anywhere near a gym. Okay? So, so what are you trying to communicate? And God said to me, he wanted to move his church from being bodybuilders to weightlifters. And a bodybuilder actually builds certain parts of his or her body to display they are wonderful and capable and beautiful but actually a weightlifter learns how to carry heavy and profoundly heavy weights. And the reason why I think that might be a word for us as a people, as a church, is simply this. I think it's time for the church to move away from bodybuilding. Now, please don't get alarmed. I think the church does need to be strengthened and we do need God to do great things with us. But actually what the Lord would prefer for us is that we carry the weight of his presence that our capacity to carry his weightiness would increase in the days that lie ahead. Can you imagine what that would look like to be a heavenly weightlifter? You walk into every environment and you have the capacity to shift some things. Yeah. 
You have this glorious resource from heaven to be able to move and to orchestrate some things out of the way and to usher in some precious things that God wants to do. Is there anybody who wants to be trained by the Spirit to be a weight lifter, a carrier of the weighty presence of God? I just want to suggest to you it will take a little bit of intentionality, like any form of discipline, to improve anything. You would need to apply yourself to that. But actually, it's time for the church to move away from just being a beautiful body, all preened and, and, and presented, and actually move into the place of our assignment, which is heavenly given to us, that we would carry the weighty presence of God. I would love the testimonies of what that would look like. Can you imagine what it would look like in our families if the weighty presence of God was deposited upon your life? I think things might change. Three of us are nodding, four of us are questioning. Things might change. Do you know that in his presence there is fullness of joy? Is there anybody in your family you'd like to get a real dose of the fullness of joy of God for? Well, become a weightlifter carry his weighty presence. And when you step into those environments, all doom and gloom will be gone in Jesus' name. Cynicism would dry up and shrivel up and hope would be restored in the hearts of those people because you're a carrier of the weighty presence of joy. It says in the scriptures that there's a power in his presence to transform things. Now sometimes I think the church is trying to transform things without power. We just haven't realized that our greatest resource is not our vocabulary. It's not our kind of programs. Actually, our greatest resource is the presence of God. God loves to be with you. Two of us are excited, amen, in the balcony. God loves to be with you. He can't keep away. His hands are all over your life. His fingerprints are there evidenced in your glorious design. God is with you and he's for you. And you know, as we step towards this glorious decade, I believe the church is going to rise in its capacity to carry the weighty presence of God. And we get to practice that with those little dumbbells. We get to practice that. We get to prepare our lives through worship and prayer and intercession and just community together. And God is preparing us for glorious things in the decade that lies ahead. I am so excited. Can you tell? I am so excited by what the Lord is going to do in and through the lives of his church. This is the time for the church to come out of hiding and to take its rightful place in the marketplace, a light into the world, to draw people to Jesus Christ, not to draw people to ourselves, but to draw people to Jesus Christ because a time is coming when a great harvest is going to happen here through the life of ordinary people like you and me. God is going to do extraordinary things. If you're up for a little bit of that kind of experience, why don't you stand to your feet for me, please? If you're saying, Father, I want to move from being a bodybuilder into a place where I become a weightlifter, where I'm carrying the weighty presence of God, his kindness, his joy, his goodness, his peace, his love, his power, his passion. Just lift your hands in his presence. Father, we thank you for your invitation to us tonight to step beyond the pruning and the preening of our lives, trying to look as good as we can so that the world will be impressed. Father, we're stepping to our truest assignment that you, God, would train us to be weightlifters, to carry the weight of your presence, the weighty, glorious reality of the goodness of God turning up in our ordinary lives 
accomplishing extraordinary things. Your word says, Father, in your presence there is fullness of joy. The first evidence of your weighty presence, Lord God, is joy. And if there was ever a time when this world needed joy, it's now. Right in the middle of chaos, Lord God, you send your people with kindness to bring a message of hope and restoration and life. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, you would train us for all that you want to do. Move us, Lord God, and guide us to places where we are greater in our capacity to carry your presence. And Lord, if there's anything in our lives that's interrupting that, or indeed causing there not to be a full and, and glorious submission to that, then we give you permission by the power of your spirit to come, Lord God, and to test our hearts and to examine our lives. For we have no greater delight than just to be completely and utterly given over to you, Father. Let there be a fresh consecration on our minds, a fresh circumcision of our hearts, God, a fresh alignment to our truest identity, to be carriers of the weighty presence of God and bring life and joy and fullness and freedom and hope to every facet of our communities. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Now give the Lord some thankfulness, would you please? And please take your seats. Over the Christmas period, we've been just walking through Luke's gospel. And I don't know if you were aware of this, but there are four individuals in the, the Christmas narrative that actually were the very first people who sang the very first Christmas carols. One of them was Mary. It was called the Magnificat. She just, when she was touched by the Lord and the angel of the Lord, she just began to worship him in the most glorious way. Zachariah was also touched in such a profound way. And tonight we're finishing that little mini-series with, I call it, Simeon's Song. You'll find it in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to the scriptures with me and we'll read it together as we draw our thoughts to some form of conclusion around the whole invitation to sing a joyful song to the Lord. Luke 2, 2 verses 25 to 35 said this, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, which is a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolidation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus before him to do what was accustomed as the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and this is his song, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Jesus' mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. Now, let's picture the moment. 
This is a very elderly gentleman, a gentleman who clearly, as the scriptures tell us, has been devout and righteous in his pursuit of God. He's weather-beaten by life. <laughs> is there anybody who feels a little like that tonight? He's been waiting for God's promise to come to pass, and he's done the best he can with his life to stay faithful to the conviction he has that God had promised him he would see the Messiah before he passed away. He stooped from the hours of prayer. His knees are probably a little bit less than thoroughly accurate in their alignment, and his back has been bent in so many ways and over so many years in his pursuit in prayer of the purposes and the plans of God. And yet, this moment has come to him, this long-awaited moment that he had prayed for, longed for, in his mind's eye, even considered or pondered or dreamt about, it's actually about to happen for him. And suddenly his heart just comes alive. You know, he's old on the outside, but he's joyous on the inside. Can anybody identify with that? I say to people, as they say to me, my goodness, you've got old. I say, there may be snow on the roof, but there's definitely fire in the grate. <clears throat> so his song just rises from the depths of who he is. It's almost like it's, it's a compelling desire to glorify God. And it's because of his hope in what God will do and what God has promised him that he is so indeed vitalized by this moment. But it's also a song of dramatic transformation. Simeon is not just singing a song of devotion. He's actually declaring something in the heavenlies of war against the brokenness of humanity. He says to Mary a little bit deeper down into the text that Mary, your son is going to cause chaos. He's going to create problems for people. Now, it's not probably the narrative we think of when we think of the little baby Jesus in a manger, but that child grew into a man. And that man tore down the strongholds of the enemy. That man broke the power of sin and the curse upon humanity to always be assigned to live a sinful life. He rose from the dead gloriously on the third day and he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns and has all authority and dominion over all things. So as Simeon sings, he declares the work that Jesus will do and the incredible way that that will affect culture. He's identifying that there'll be great division as a result of Jesus. Now that's almost counterintuitive to us. We often think of Jesus as meek and mild and just gathering people into a place of unity and connectivity. And indeed, there is some scope for that in this particular narrative. But actually, the truth is, Jesus divides every room he's in. There are people who are for him and there are people who are against him. And what this particular song does, it interrupts that indecision that so often exists in the human heart and says, make up your mind concerning the Messiah. He either is the Son of God or he isn't. So let me highlight to you some things that I've picked up from this particular narrative that may be of value to us as we posture our hearts and step towards the future. The first thing we recognize is that Simeon was well known. And he was well known for two things. I don't know what you're known for. Perhaps you're a little bit of a complainer, are you? Are you the kind of person that when somebody sits down next to you, you can see the life draining out of them as you tell them your problems? Do you know, sometimes we are known for all kinds of things. Some people say, oh, you're known for the lady who prays in tongues in the meeting. Well, that's a great testimony to be known for. Or the lady who's always happy. Do we have one of those in tonight? Well, you're hiding it well. If it's you, 
Let it out, please. But Simeon had a testimony, and it wasn't his own perspective on himself. Sometimes I think we are guilty of trying to present to the world a testimony we'd like people to believe about us. And actually, if we're really honest, some of those things aren't necessarily real. Have you ever been in a meeting where people pray really loud to discover that when you get to know them, they don't really play at home at all? Have you ever noticed that? When I first became a Christian, I thought you had to be posh to be a Christian. Because the church I went to was, was a little bit posh, and they would say, Oh, God of the rolling spheres, you're ineffably sublime. I thought if you wanted to have a prayer life, you needed to talk like this before the Lord. And actually, when you spoke to those people outside of the meeting, they would say things like this, You're all right, Bab. How are you doing? You're all right. I thought, what happens to Christians when they come into the presence of God that they think they have to fake some kind of persona for God to bless them? Do you know God speaks to who you are? He doesn't speak to who you'd like to be. He has this glorious capacity to minister to you. He likes you. He likes you the way you are. But the good news is he likes you too much to leave you the way you are. And we're really grateful to God that he's always at work in all of our lives for those things. So Simeon had a testimony. He had a reputation. And it was centered around two things. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. As we step towards this new decade, I'm wondering... At the end of that tenure, what will be my reputation? What will it be that will be the legacy that is left behind after that decade has passed? And I would love to be intentional as I step towards the 2020s, asking and seeking God for two things. I would love it to be said of me. I didn't care much for his dress sense or, you know, his haircut always needed a little bit of tweaking. And who really understands what the Irish have to say anyway? But he was righteous and he was devout. Righteous meaning he lived with a clarity and a certainty about the reality of his need for a savior. And he drew upon consistently the righteousness of Christ so that he could live gloriously. Wouldn't that be a great legacy to leave behind in the 2020s? And what about this one, devout? I find in the church, the only people that are meant to be devout are the people who stand up here. But in Acts chapter 2, this is what it said of the New Testament church, they devoted themselves. You see, a time is coming when the body of Christ has to wake up. The leadership that happens here, we hope is good for you, but actually you can have a self-leadership in the way that you orchestrate your life. When was the last time for the first time you made some commitments to God that will take you through this decade of time into a place where you come out the other end completely changed and transformed? It's time for the church to be devoted again and not devoted just to meetings, devoted to the Lord God Almighty himself. Devoted to hearing his voice personally. Devoted to understanding his word gloriously. Devoted to serving his purposes miraculously. It's time that the church devoted themselves. And Simeon is known in his community. He's known for the many years of service and the many years of devotion. I'm wondering what legacy I will have said after this decade has concluded. So Simeon had a testimony. That testimony, on a day-by-day basis, cost him dearly. In a moment-by-moment decision-making process, he would have made many decisions that nobody would have seen that would have turned up in the way he loved Jesus and the way he served God's purposes. 
So a testimony. Now the problem with a testimony is sometimes we confuse our history for our testimony. Sometimes when I ask people, you know, tell me your testimony, they say, in 1932, I was minding my own business and Jesus turned up in my life and I've never been. No, that's your history. Here's your testimony. What is God doing today? What is God currently working on in your life today? What are you discovering about him today? What is God revealing to you through his word today? That's your testimony. Now in the book of Revelation, it says in the end time church, they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not their history. God has done great things in your past, but he's also at work in your present. God is doing something good in your life today. I wonder what fruit of the spirit he's developing in you. And there you were saying, Jesus, make me more like you. I'd like to be patient. And he sent you frustration. He is so clever and so capable of helping us become more like him. It's phenomenal when you take a little look at that. What revelation of God are you currently being offered? Is it the father heart of God? Is he the lover you always wanted? Is it the one who invites you? To see his power and authority change humanity through miracles and manifestations. What revelation is the Father offering you today? Do you know that the church often doesn't receive from God the upgrades that God wants to give? Because we're so preoccupied with our history. We fail to understand that God's at work in our ordinary everyday lives. Building a testimony that's powerful. And you see, whenever I work in step with the Holy Spirit... God begins to do something in and through my life. God is doing some good things in your lives. Some really good things. Do you have any idea what they are? I hope you do. And when you find out, just begin to jump all over that and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you how to live in those realities. Because every invitation is an upgrade in the kingdom of God that brings us fuller and deeper into the purposes of God. What will your testimony be? What will people say about you at the end of 2020? Please don't waste another 10 years. Be very intentional. Be very coherent in your thought and your heart. Be seeking the Lord and seeking his ways and understanding what he's doing. And partner with him until you become everything that he is inviting you to become. And here's another thing about any upgrade God gives. It's always about fellowship. You see, sometimes we want to move in power, but God wants to deepen our understanding of his nature. Sometimes we want God to use us to reach people with the gospel, and God wants the gospel to reach us in deeper places in our hearts. God is always at work developing your relationship with him. It's the most exciting thing. Whether I'm going through the trials or the triumphs or the tragedies, the invitation is consistent. Who is God going to be for me in the midst of what's happening around me? And when I start to lean into that and stop asking the question, God, what are you doing to me? And ask this better question, God, what are you doing in me? Then I start to come into partnership and in step with what the Spirit is inviting me to. At the end of 2020, I would love it that people would say of me, he was a man who was righteous and devout. Wouldn't you? The second thing I want to highlight to you is this. That in every invitation, there's always a test and a trial. In verse 25, it says that he was waiting for the consolidation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I can guarantee you in the 2020s, there is going to be a trial. 
I can guarantee you as you step over the threshold of this new decade, please do not be alarmed if the enemy comes in to test you or indeed if there are circumstances surrounding you that actually don't fit with your program. You see, we believe that when God wants to bless us, it's going to be easy. But the truth is when God wants to bless us, the devil wants to affect us. And in every blessing, there is a battle. In everything God wants to give, there is a contending. In every invitation that's given to us to live at a higher level of relationship with him, there are some things that we need to contest with so that we can possess what God is indeed inviting us to. And this was not unfamiliar to Simeon because he had been waiting. He had been waiting for the consolidation of Israel. God had spoken to him, God had given him a dream, God had told him this would happen. And can you imagine, he's quite elderly, this gentleman, so frail he can barely move properly. He'd been waiting for a long time. How many of us find waiting difficult? Tell the truth. I love Christians, they don't tell lies, they just sing them. Here I am waiting. Yeah, for a second and a half. You know, the Bible says that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. We've got to get used to waiting, and we've got to learn how to wait well. Well, he'd been waiting a long, long time, but in the waiting, Simeon spent his time not wandering as many of us would, not wandering because of frustration, but he spent his time worshiping. He spent his time devoted, clearly from the text before, that's the evidence to the people around him. In your waiting, for all that God wants to do, can I encourage you to adopt a posture of worship? Worship attracts the plan and the purposes of God. Wandering doesn't. And see, when we're waiting, here's what we do. We go out and we find prophetic people and we say, give me another prophetic word. Now God has spoken to us, but we're wandering looking for a quick fix to a long-term adventure. You see, God will keep us in the waiting position until the worship has grown to such a point that this new thing he invites us to will not destroy our lives, but will expand our hearts. In the waiting, we have two options. We wander looking for another word from God. You know, some people have been waiting for a husband. I think they visited every church in London now. That might just be wandering and not waiting. I just want to leave that with you. Have a little think about that. Some people, <laughs> sorry, some people have been waiting for a breakthrough financially. I mean, you've given to everybody's ministry. You know, if we were to, to, to just total up the cash thousands has been spent because you've been wandering here and there and there and there because you wouldn't wait and you didn't wait worshiping God. You thought that you could circumvent the plan of God and the purpose of God by trying to bring an emergency result to something that needs to be marinated in your heart. If you are waiting, then my recommendation to you is start worshiping. Just open your heart before the Lord. Yeah, I know it's difficult some days, but you know God likes an honest song. The lyrics of the Psalms tell us that David came before the Lord with truth 
and reality. He wasn't trying to fake it till he makes it. He was saying, God, this hurts. This sucks. This is hard. This is difficult. But I love you, Jesus. I love you, Father. And can I say that when you worship in your waiting, you attract the presence of God. You attract the spirit of God. Look what it says there about him. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolidation of Israel. And as he was waiting, he was worshiping and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In your waiting, worship the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to permeate and to penetrate and to overwhelm your life with his presence. Because what we need for the next season is not a small measure of the Spirit, not just a momentary experience. We don't want an encounter. We want Him to inhabit our lives. We want our bodies to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, filled to overflowing, pressed down, shaken up, that even without even understanding in every room I walk into, the overflow of my heart before the Lord just begins to splatter and to splash the lives of people around me. I am not wandering in the waiting. I'm going to be worshiping the waiting. And I'm going to be wondering what that will look like. God, what will it all look like when it begins to happen? God makes promises and he's not in a hurry. What needs to happen is for us to come into alignment. There are assignments waiting for you in the 2020s and you will not get there by human effort or energy. You certainly won't get there by wandering. But if you worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, you will attract the favor of heaven and the spirit of God will rest on you and you'll be as ready as anybody could be for all that God wants to do. Where there is an invitation, there is always a trial, but there is also an opportunity to grow in our capacity to love God wholeheartedly. The third thing that I notice here in this scripture that Simeon models for us is that he trusted in what God said to him and was willing to trade everything for it to come to pass. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine you turn up one day at the temple it's just a regular day for you. You feel prompted by God to go, but you probably felt prompted by God to go many, many times. And you see the Messiah. Everything you prayed for, everything you've longed for, everything you believe God would do is there wrapped up in this little bundle called a child. God has turned up in your world. You are relieved, but at the same time, you are challenged because God has said, when you see the Messiah, you will die. And the truth is for all of us, when we see who God truly is, there's a dying to self that has to come. When our eyes behold who he truly is, we start to recognize who we truly are. It was the prophet who said, woe unto me, for I am undone. When you behold who God truly is, you are conscious of your sinfulness, you are conscious of your brokenness, and you are conscious that everything in you that's strident and indeed proud and arrogant and forceful has to die. Because if you want him to live and to rule and to reign in your life, you've got to make space for him to do so. And to die is gain to the Christian. You see, I think sometimes we're trying so hard to live, we forget to die. We want this abundant life. Do you know where it's found? Dying. If you want the resurrection power, there's a clue. You might have to die. If you want God to move through your life, then you might need to give up. And when you're praying these wonderful prayers without much thought, Lord, your kingdom come, can I remind you what you're really praying is my kingdom go? 
As you want God to move in power in your life, you might need to move out of the way. The Bible says that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not produce a harvest. And I believe that the fresh revelation of Jesus in the decade that comes ahead of us will require a greater measure of death for the church. It's time that we allowed God to kill us off. There are only two people trying to kill you, the devil and God, and you get to choose who it is. Now here's my choice. I would much rather God kill me off than the devil kill me off because I know the devil will just be cruel, but God will be gentle and kind and generous and merciful and full of grace and full of love. You choose who's going to get the final say on death. And I believe, I need to say this to someone here. You are asking God to do something powerful, but actually you're still trying to keep control of your own life. And I believe you just need to cave in and lie down and let God be God and you just be you. And as you step over the threshold into this new decade, can I say that death really becomes you. It suits you really well. And for us to live in the fullness of Christ, we need to die to self so that God can have his way in us. And for Simeon, seeing the blessing of God meant the end of his life. His life as he knew it. Can you imagine praying, prophesying, serving and giving, and then the Messiah turns up? He would have been absolutely overwhelmed by that. And then he would have had to go home and say to the missus, if she was still alive, you better get the funeral plan out. Are we with the co-op? Did we have over 50s life cover? You didn't sell the house to those people who then don't give it back to us when I'm dead, do you? Whatever it is that was going on behind the scenes, that day, that moment, that particular glorious revelation that the Messiah was here actually was the end of his life as he knew it. He had sight for the end and he knew when he saw the Messiah, the end was in sight. When you behold God, when you see him as he truly is, when you know his power and authority to change everything, there is only one decent response from a Christian's heart to the Lord, and that is, Lord, I must decrease as you increase. The fourth thing that I recognize in Simeon's life that may be worth mentioning to us as we step towards this decade ahead is that we need to know the truth about the ordinary. I think sometimes the church is caught up with wanting extraordinary things to happen. We would like a burning bush. If you ever do have a burning bush, get your hose pipe out because it could be dangerous to your neighbors. We would like the, the waters to part. Can you imagine going out one day and commanding the Thames to separate itself? If I were you, I wouldn't walk across it. You'd be up to your armpits in mud or something worse, according to what I've heard. But you know, we want the dramatic. We want the spectacular. We want the astounding. We always want to be amazed. Have you noticed Christians want to be amazed? God amaze us again. Sometimes I'm in meetings and people want God to move in power because they need to be amazed again. You know, I believe that the miraculous is not just for the church. In fact, if we're really honest, we can easily fall into the trap of being entertained by the power of God's manifest presence. The miraculous are signs that stop people from wandering and start their hearts to be curious about the reality of Jesus. There's more miracles to be had outside of these walls than there is to be seen inside of them. Someone say amen to that. 
And God's purpose is not just to bedazzle you with his power or to cause you to be stirred in faith again. You already know Jesus. You're full of faith. You already know that God is God. Is there anybody here who's been saved? Three of us. Thank God for that. Do you know you can't be resaved? So I don't know what you're hoping will happen when you see something miraculous. And I've been around this for many, many years. People who are chasing the power of the Holy Spirit. How about letting the power of the Holy Spirit chase you? Hunt you down so that you die to self so that Christ can live in you. And why would you be chasing somebody else's miraculous ministry when the power of God inside of you is the same power that's inside of them? God can use you gloriously. And we don't need to be entertained by the Holy Spirit. What we need to be is submitted to and led by the Holy Spirit. And God works in the ordinary. Nudge your neighbor and say he's talking about you. God works in the ordinary. God is at work in the ordinary of our lives. The problem is we don't notice it. The problem is we don't spend time looking for it. But in the ordinary routine of your life, God is at work. The Bible says he never sleeps or slumbers. And what he has begun in your life, has he begun anything with any of you? Do you know what? He hasn't finished yet, has he? But he will complete it. And today, he's at work in the midst of your life. This day, look at verse 27. It's an ordinary day for Simeon. How many thousands of times had he been to the temple? How many thousands of times had he dragged himself out of his bed and thought, one more visit, God? The ordinary was part of his day-to-day -day routine. And he went to the temple courts. In verse 27, it says, when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, this is what it says of Simeon, that he actually, in the ordinary, started to recognize that this was an extraordinary moment. And here's what happened to him. Just in the routine of life, he felt a little leaning from the Holy Spirit to say something good is about to happen today. You know, sometimes we think that God shouts, but he whispers. Sometimes we want the amplification of a big crusade or a, a man of God or a woman of God. But you know, God is a whisperer. God whispers and he does not shout. He doesn't need to shout. You see, to truly come into partnership with the voice of God, you need to silence some things in your life. To truly hear him clearly, you need to get rid of the committee in your head. Does anybody else have a committee in their head? Is it just me? Don't worry, I don't have multiple personality disorder. But there's a few people inside of me that tell me and drive me. And have you ever been in an argument and you've got that voice saying, say that, say that, say that? <laughs> Who is that person? And how do they get inside your head? And then there's that other voice, isn't there? If you do this, this is going to happen. The voice of dread and doom. Have you got one of those? Another member of the committee. Do you have the committee? Is it just me? Please tell me it's not just me. <laughs> and then there's that lovely rebellious voice that says, just do it. Don't worry about the consequences. Just do it. There's a few voices inside my head. If I'm not careful, my life can be led and driven and moved and pulled and pushed in all kinds of directions. And I need to still those voices because there is a still small voice underneath all the chaos of my life. All of the brokenness of my soul, there is a God who loves in the ordinary every day of my life to whisper the secrets of his heart. And when he whispers, 
The power of his word comes into my life. And here's what the Bible says about that. It will not return to him void, but accomplish what he has set it out to do. Do you know there is no such thing as an ordinary day for a Christian? You couldn't have an ordinary day if you tried. Do you know why? Because you have an extraordinary God who's inside of you and with you and for you. And he is working out his purposes in and through your life. Just, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is doing. God told me a number of years ago, because I feel so ordinary 99.9% of the time. And when I think I'm extraordinary, I'm married. And my wife reminds me of just how ordinary I really am. And I am so grateful to God for her because she tells me the truth. Sometimes when I'm preaching, she's going like this. I know things are really bleak when she just puts her head down. I think she's trying to go into hibernation, hoping that any association with me will not be recognizable. But you know, that's a vast improvement on how it used to be. Because when we first got married, she'd be sitting there going like this. And I have helped her over the years to reduce her excessive hand-waving. Because it looks like she's trying to land a plane. And just now we're at that point where she just looks. She just looks. And you know, I know everything she means in that look. I don't have to ask a question. I don't need to second guess it. I don't need to look twice. In fact, I'm frightened to look her in the eye when she looks. I tend to look away. But I realized that what has happened between us is that I know her so well. Wasn't it good? I know her so well, and she knows me so well. And you see, the longer you walk with God, the less volume you need, the less drama you need, the less hand-waving and, and overtly obvious direction you need because you know his heart and he knows yours. And just one glimpse of who he is will change the course of your life. It'll shut down some things and open up some other things. God told me a number of years ago, if I do something ordinary, extraordinarily, then God will do something extraordinary in the midst of my ordinary. Shall I say that again? Because you think I'm Irish and you think I'm confused, don't you? It's a riddle to be had for the Irish. God said, if I do something ordinary, extraordinarily, in other words, if I give it all of my heart and all of my passion and all of my desire and delight and worship, then God will do something extraordinary and it will look really ordinary. Do you know that if you really want to work in signs and wonders, here's the simple caveat for signs and wonders. Naturally supernatural. Supernaturally natural. You see, we don't have to pray for the sick by this. Now, you don't even talk like that every other day of the week. Okay, we don't have to. God's not angry with sick people. He's not upset that people are sick. You know that, don't you? He has the power to heal. You should be praying for people and it would feel really ordinary. But the extraordinary power of God is with you. If you can practice being extraordinary in your ordinary, then God will do extraordinary things through your ordinariness. That's just the nature of God. He takes the simple and the foolish things of this world and uses them to confound the wisdom of mankind. And finally, finally, this decisive moment has dawned, and it's a moment of clarity for Simeon. 
because he realizes that everything is changing. Everything is now available. Look into what he says here. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 30. You have prepared in the presence of all these people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. What he's saying is simply this. Right here before me, everything that I prayed for, everything I longed for, every reason I got up in the morning and did all those ordinary things with the hope that one day an extraordinary moment will come. Every time, oh God, that I began to see that you take the ordinary and do something extraordinary through it. Father, every single time I've traded my trust for the treasure of your promise, every single time, God, that the trials turned up in the midst of me trying to move forward, and every single time, Lord God, that my testimony was being built through sacrifice and service, it was all about this moment. Your revelation of the, the Messiah is here. And you know, Jesus did not just come into our world to make our life sweet. He came as a revolutionary to rectify injustice, to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus is neither meek nor mild. He's majestic and he is passionate about his kingdom. He's passionate about injustice. He's passionate about transforming broken lives. He's passionate about giving the weak and the lost and the lonely a chance to become all that they were intended to be. He's passionate about turning your rags into robes of royal priesthood. He's passionate about restoring dignity to your heart. He's passionate about giving you purity, though you may have had promiscuity as your middle name for a long, long time. Jesus came to turn the world the right way up for you for mankind, for humanity, for God's purposes, Jesus will always divide every single room he is in. You know, I've been in rooms and people fall down and they worship him and there are others standing in the corners shaking their fist at him. Sometimes people don't always get who God is or what God is trying to do. But you know, if you're for him, you will start to understand the benefits of serving him. And if you're against him, don't worry, he's for you. And trust me, you cannot outrun God's kindness. You can run to the ends of the earth, but he's there. You know, my brother, he has a little deal going with God. He said this to me a number of years ago. I don't go to God's house and I won't let him come to mine. Well, that's okay because you know what? God isn't restricted by a house. So he gets on an airplane. He's a hardened crook and felon. And he's heading off to America. Guess who he's sitting next to? A Baptist minister who feels it's his God-given anointing to preach to this man for the seven and a half hours. Well, when he got off the other side, I was so blessed because he may not have allowed God to come to his house and he was promising me he'd never come, but God took Jesus to my brother, sitting in a first-class seat next to a... Why do Baptist ministers always travel first class? Sitting in a first-class seat. It's just a question I'm curious about. And you know, when he got to the place that he'd purchased in America, he turns up and the people living above him are born again, Bible-believing Christians, okay, who come down with all kinds of goodies for him. They're baking him cakes. He texts me and says, I'm out of my mind with these people. You have put them everywhere on purpose for me. 
And so he decides that he would hire a jet ski. And guess what? The guy who sold him the jet ski and hired it to him was a born-again, believing Christian. And he had just got saved out of drugs and alcohol. And he was going for the gospel full pelt. If you go to the ends of the earth, he's there. God is relentless in his pursuit of you. And you may be indifferent to him, but he is sold out on pursuing you. You cannot outrun him. You cannot avoid him. Jesus will not be ignored. God is here in this earth. There are lives of people in this room who have been transformed by his power. We never believed we could ever be any different, but the power of God at work in us through salvation changed everything about us. God rewrote the story of our lives. We were labeled this and that and called forever all kinds of things. We came from families that were dysfunctional. Who doesn't? You've just had Christmas, be honest. Who doesn't come from a dysfunctional family? If you're not from a dysfunctional family, you must be American. <laughs> Jesus will always divide every room. There are those who would give their life for him and those who are angry about everything with him. But his heart is impeccable. And once he turns up in someone's life, you better just yield. Don't waste many years trying to resist what your heart has always longed for. Because perfect love is what we're searching for. And indeed, as you allow him to take his rightful place in your life, that perfect love will drive out all conscious awareness of fear and anxiety because those two things can't reign in the same body as somebody who's in love with Jesus and given over to him.